Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and happy feast day as well. I know there are a few people who aren't going to make it here tonight because uh, they're going to liturgy or to mass, and uh, and so we'll hope that they're praying for us, and we'll pray for them as well. But uh, we're picking up this evening with step number seven on uh, joyful sorrow or the joy-making sorrow as it's uh, described here. And we just began this step last time. And so we're at the bottom of page 111 uh, with number five at the very bottom of the page. One of the, the, the most challenging, I think, to understand uh, because, you know, I think getting around the language a little bit and trying to understand what they're trying to communicate. But uh, John gives us the most developed uh, vision of this, I think, of any of the fathers. And that, along with uh, his understanding of tears, uh, is developed quite well here as well. So uh, we have a lot to look forward to here this evening. So number five on page 111. If you possess the gift of mourning, hold on to it with all your might, for it is easily lost when it is not firmly established. And just as Mac wax melts in the presence of fire, so it is easily dissolved by noise and bodily cares and by luxury, and especially by talkativeness and levity. And so, what John will be doing is speaking to us of the importance and the value of compunction, uh, the fruit that it bears, and which is ultimately joy and a deep and abiding joy in the Lord. Uh, but he'll also speak in great uh, measure about the things that can undermine it for us and make it dissolve. And here, you know, bodily cares, luxury, even talkativeness and levity on a certain level, uh, when it becomes excessive, can diminish the, the clarity of our focus in the, in the sense of our mourning for our sin, uh, but also the remembrance of God. And uh, so, you know, this often can be a point of contention, I think, when we hear about talkativeness or laughter written by written about by some of the fathers. It can be a little bit jarring, but I think what they have in view here is it's not so much the joy that is part of being a human being and certainly of our life in Christ and uh, but a kind of buffoonery, uh, which even you know some of the great saints that were the most joyful uh, were very cautious about where we we don't take anything seriously and uh, and where this can sort of then dissipate us and make us lose lose our focus in the spiritual life. And uh, so it's not, you know, a critique of being good humored or joyful in that sense of it, but it's not seeking our joy uh, in the things of this world or often that are degrading, you know, both to, to the self and to the other. Number six, probably the most striking uh, of paragraphs, greater than baptism itself is the fountain of tears after baptism even though it is somewhat audacious to say so. For baptism is the washing away of evils that were in us before, but sins committed after baptism are washed away by tears. As baptism is received in infancy, we have all defiled it, but we cleanse it anew with tears. 
and if God in his love for mankind had not given us tears, those being saved would be few indeed and hard to find. And so it certainly puts things into perspective for us that this kind of mourning over one sin, sorrow, compunction over one sin, uh, and the depths to which it reaches, even to tearfulness, uh, is of such significance that John can compare it to the gift of baptism itself, or even called it a second baptism, and that few would be saved without it, that uh, this hatred for sin, sorrow for sin, uh, is the flip side, if you will, of our love and desire for God. And uh, so the more that we begin to esteem that love for God and all the gifts that he's given us, the more we'll develop a kind of a hatred for sin and a desire to free ourselves from it. And uh, we'll see it with a greater clarity. You know, love is not blind. We've talked about this before. The, the more pure our hearts become, the, the greater clarity that we have in seeing the uh, the nature of sin and its effects upon us and our relationships, both with God and with others. And uh, more that we see the truth of this, the, the, the greater sorrow that we have. And with that, then we're drawn back to God. Number seven, groanings and sorrows cry to the Lord. Tears shed from fear intercede for us. But tears of all holy love show us that our prayer has been accepted. So I've often heard from some of the saints just, uh, the description of prayer uh, simply as John describes it in the first sentence, groaning or a cry to the Lord from the depths of one's heart. Uh, but he goes on to say that the, these tears intercede on our behalf uh, before God that uh, they reveal uh, the, what is truly within our heart and the depth of our compunction. But when they flow simply out of love for God, when that is the focus of them, then we uh, begin to understand that they've been accepted by God, that there is a kind of abiding joy and peace that comes over the heart. And this is one of the fruits of the sorrow. So again, you know, for the Eastern writers, Christian writers, it isn't a kind of raw emotionalism. It is something that has been touched by the grace of God. And so sorrow, uh, sadness, touched by this, uh, the, the virtue, if you will, of contrition, uh, of compunction, then is something that bears fruit for us, that it draws us back toward God, cleanses the heart, and allows us then to, to see the depth of that love and mercy. And so the tears in and of themselves, and John will make this very clear, are not an end in themselves. And this is something that those in the spiritual life have to avoid, because uh, they can become a matter of pride. Uh, you know, a person might have a kind of ease with the shedding of tears. And because they, they do do so, then somehow think that they are advanced in the spiritual life. Whereas for others, they, the external uh, sign might be much harder to come by, but internally 
they, they might have a, a truer and deeper sorrow. So John isn't speaking only of the physical tears. I think he realizes that by temperament, people can vary. But what's most important is the, the compunction, the sorrow of heart that then leads us uh, toward God and to acknowledge our sin before him and to seek his mercy. Anthony. <clears throat> Father, would you please distinguish these tears from the tears sin of sin born of scrupulous fear? Yeah, I think in a scrupulosity often is born of a kind of obsessive quality in thought. And uh, it's often something that's very painful, but painful for a different reason, that uh, the obsessive nature of a person who's scrupulous, the obsessive nature of their thinking, uh, does not allow them to take hold of the reality of the mercy of God, to be able to make that step or to believe or to accept that those tears have been accepted by God or, or pleasing in his eyes, that the obsessive ruminating over the sin uh, magnifies them to such an extent that they block out the mercy of God and prevent a person from being able to trust in that mercy. And, uh, and so it's very painful and for an individual to go through and often is rooted, you know, I, I think in an experience of shame uh, and, uh, you know, that perhaps emerged at an early time in one's life uh, in terms of the viewing of oneself, the viewing of one's sin, and that makes it very hard then uh, to experience that vulnerability before God and to experience it is not something that is painful or that is fear-ridden. And so it requires a confessor, I think, to be you know, very gentle and to be able to discern what is going on there, to be able to distinguish what is, what is a true and deep sorrow for one's sin and what is rooted in either fear or shame or simply uh, psychologically and emotionally in a kind of obsessive uh, nature in one's thought patterns. And, uh, and so a priest has to be very careful because uh, you know, uh, they might offer spiritual counsel that could drive an individual deeper into uh, the, the darkness of scrupulosity or the pain of it. And uh, confession can be a great source of healing uh, for, uh, I don't think a person even who's struggling with scrupulosity should be pushed away from the sacrament. Uh, I think it's learning to be able to experience within the sacrament the gentleness and the tenderness of God, to have that become an experience that is healing for them and to have it be that uh, in uh, a kind of consistent way that it overrides the habit of mind that has become deeply entrenched for one reason or another. And it could be early trauma or even simply the, a trauma that we wouldn't see, you know, in terms of external manifestations of it, but in terms of how a person came to experience reality, self, the relationship with God, sometimes in relationship to the parental figures in their life or authority figures in their life. 
that make it very hard then to trust that there is a merciful God. And you know, in some ways, John addresses it later in this particular step, uh, uh, because there is that concern that a person could be led into despair or despondency, or the demons would lead them not to believe that God is merciful, that after the fall, they become the great accuser and keep a person locked in this darkness and from making this move from sorrow to joy, to, to you know, this cleansing that then brings, uh, again, this experience of unity and intimacy with God. So if you know someone who struggles with scrupulosity, I think you want to help them find, you know, certainly therapeutic work and help uh, can be very healing there, but uh, helping them find a confessor to guide them through that and to have them go to the same confessor over the course of time is something that can be healing as well. Because on the part of the confessor, it requires great patience because there often there will be this kind of rumination over uh, past sins that have even been confessed and fearing that they have not been forgiven in one way or another. And if you have a confessor that treats that harshly or shuts that down uh, harshly, then it can simply lead to a kind of further kind of traumatizing there. Any follow-up there? Okay. All right. Number eight. If nothing goes so well with humility as mourning, certainly nothing is so opposed to it as laughter. So what kind of laughter is John speaking of here? And again, you know, it's not just buffoonery, but I think sometimes we uh, will find things humorous that will speak to our, our sensibilities that are often diminishing of you know, that which is good or, or of the other, you know, character flaws, weaknesses. And, uh, and so we will make fun of others you know, in our mind or thought or to, to other, uh, other people. And so much of our laughter and so much of humor uh, can be at the expense of the other person. Uh, but even laughter being a good uh, for us as human beings that can be healing, enlighten the soul, uh, if not touched by the grace of God, or if, uh, if it falls into a- uh, excess, then there can be a kind of diminishing of the attention that one would want to have upon God. And uh, it's one thing to see, you know, the, the, the humorous aspects of life, you know, of our foibles and our weaknesses or, and to find certain things funny. It's another thing to sort of get lost in, in that to, to the extent that we then become oblivious to the deeper realities of the dignity of the other person or really where our, our thoughts and our minds are to be. Laughter, uh, even in psychology, is uh, a psychological is not seen as a uh, psychological defense mechanism, a very good one, 
that it's not it's not you know defenses defense mechanisms aren't something necessarily they're negative sometimes they're very important you know when people say you know if i'm not you know better that i laugh about this than cry about it you know it's this something can be so hard that laugh laughter about it can sort of lighten the mood and the soul uh but uh, you know at, at times if something uh becomes such a strong defense or what we are using for dealing with all the difficult realities of life then it might prevent us from acknowledging greater truths about our, ourselves or our relationship with God. And so even, you know, even our virtues have to be perfected by the grace of God, but these aspects of, of who we are as human beings have to be touched by the grace of God so that they lead to their, their rightful end. And la laughter certainly does have its place. Any comments about this? I want people to be pretty free about this. What would St. Philip Neri be a good example of this? I think he's the perfect example of it because Philip had a, a joyfulness and I don't think it's often captured very well, certainly not in movies and things such as that. And then even in certain writings, I think Philip's joy arose out of this deep immersion in the life of Christ. I mean, as a young man, he spent so many hours in prayer and there was such a deep virtue there and purity of heart that Philip began to participate in the joy of the kingdom that to such an extent it radiated from him that those around him experienced that joy and often were comforted by it in a very deep way but what I said earlier about buffooneries actually I was quoting Philip Neary the joyfulness is a good thing and cheerfulness is often the best way to lead another person, a person, another person toward to Christ as well as ourselves. But we are to avoid, he says, buffoonery. And I, I think that that's what's key with him, that he realized that we can fall into this excessiveness where we don't take things serious at all that we should, uh, that we can be cavalier about certain realities. And for him, that would not be true joyfulness that is rooted in, in Christ and in the truth and that which is beautiful. Any other thoughts? Bridget writes, Bridget McGinley, I heard that Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago stated that those with a sense of humor had a greater constitution to bear the trials. I've not read this book, but it struck me because I've read uh, Father Walter Chiswick with God in Russia, and I cannot imagine the sorrows. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's, I haven't read, I've read little bits and pieces of, of the Gulag Archipelago, and uh, I can't say that I've come across that, but it wouldn't surprise me uh, for the reasons that I've already said, that you know, laughter is this powerful mechanism that we have as human beings uh, to deal with the often the tragedies and the hardships of life and uh, I think for that reason it is a gift of God uh, that we are capable of seeing through uh, the these hard realities of life to something that is greater and our ability to have humor even in the face 
of those things expresses a kind of vision of faith and uh, that we, we are able to see beyond that which is hard and difficult to, to something that which is greater. And I think for, for us as Christians, we want to make that connection uh, more deliberate, you know, certainly in the ways, way that St. Philip Neri did, that it was this immersion in prayer with he who is life and the source of our joy and a source of a kind of invincible joy and peace that Philip found what he did. And I think this is what we want to emulate. All right. Number nine. <clears throat> Keep a firm hold of the blessed gladdening sorrow of holy compunction and do not stop working at it until it raises you high above the things of this world and presents you pure to Christ. So there's something, it's interesting, the language that's used there, that it lifts us up and it becomes sort of that yoke that Christ talks about that's perfectly fit for us, that raises us up, that does not weigh us down. So our sorrow over our sin and this true contrition raises us up above the things of this world where we are able to see beyond them to that which is enduring. We're able to see the enduring love and mercy of God ultimately, but it also allows us to see what, uh, what is most significant, what he promises us, which is eternal, eternal life that this ultimately is the source of our, our joy. And so this is what would make this blessed gladdening sorrow different from uh, depression, despondency, that uh, these realities can weigh us down uh, often because we lose sight of that greater good and that greater love. Whereas the sorrow that the fathers are talking about draw us in to the light and illuminate the greater reality for us. <clears throat> Number 10, do not cease to picture and to scrutinize the dark abyss of eternal fire and the merciless servants, the uncompassionate and inexorable judge, the bottomless pit of subterranean flame, the narrow descents to the awful underground chambers and yawning gulfs, and all such things so that the sensuality in our soul may be checked by the great terror and give place to the incorruptible chastity and itself receive the shining of the immaterial light, which radiates more than any fire. So the, the first part of this paragraph uh, and the weight of it is, is such that I think it reveals to us the darkness of sin and our attachment to sin and how uh, it will hold us, uh, you know, to keep our focus upon the things of this world, our reflection upon the last things uh, is something that the saints have often talked about in terms of awakening the mind and the heart to that which is of greater. And it gives rise to this kind of terror 
though, that then purifies the heart. And he describes it here. It gives place to incorruptible chastity. So what it does is it allows our love to be rightly ordered to its proper end, toward God. So once that chastity becomes incorruptible, then we are able to see the immaterial light which radiates more than any fire, that the light of God's love uh, illuminates the heart and uh, overcomes any darkness that might be, be within us or that would draw us into the, the darkness of despair. So it's, it's a hard thing. I think this is where sometimes we have to suspend judgment, especially when this is not our experience or we have not tasted something of the fruit of it, that this is a difficult thing to do, to meditate upon our end or the last things uh, and allow that reality uh, to purify and cleanse the heart in our attachment to the things of this world, disordered attachment to the things of this world. And But once that happens, John is very clear that this gives rise to something incredible within us as human beings, an incorruptible chastity that then allows us to experience the light of God. This is the part that we often don't hear. I think we hear the first part uh, about the, you know, meditating upon the last things and the fear and the terror that that can give rise to. But again, I think this is why having good spiritual counsel is very important, that one could easily get wrapped in the darkness of that and lose sight of the ultimate goal. Uh, Anthony writes, I guess St. Francis had this blessed gladdening sorrow. His fear or sorrow alternated with bliss. But although he was lighthearted, he was so solid in God's reality. Hold on for a second. So, yes, he was solid in God's reality that, you know, daily and as part of every uh, one of the hours that Francis would pray, he would also add this meditation upon the passion. And I think this certainly did, as well as meditating upon the things that John is talking about here, shape his heart and purify his heart. You know, that then he had this deep and abiding peace that emerged, that nothing in this world would give rise to fear or anxiety. You know, once he let go of his hold of everything within this, this world and began to cling only to Christ. Daniel writes, maybe it's how it's worded, but how does fear of an uncompassionate and inexorable judge give way to love for that same uncompassionate judge? It's a good question. You know, I, I think our sin, part of our sin is what darkens our vision of God. And, you know, God, I think, allows us to experience the, the weight and the, the significance of that, the consequence of it, and to see him only in one light. And uh, it's in passing through that uh, 
then that we ultimately have our hearts purified, that we are able to see God not through the the lie that sin is and the, the lies of the one who seeks to lead us into sin. We are presented with God as judge and you know the fear of that reality uh you know of our mortality of the the weight of our choices our freedom the weight and the burden of that sin god allows us to experience that even in terms of how it affects the way that we view him and in order that we might truly turn from it and then be able to embrace and experience god as he is in himself and you know i think even when we talk about the spiritual life as a whole uh even in a more positive light that this is what takes place in the spiritual life that we we move from this limited vision of god uh that is impeded by our limitations as human beings most especially by our sin and so even as the we're while we're being drawn along by the grace of god and being perfected by that grace eventually uh we hear especially from some of the western mystics like john of the cross talk about how those things begin to break down in terms of our vision and our understanding of god and that there's a kind of breaking with our experience of reality in order that we might experience he who is reality in an unencumbered fashion in and through the gift of faith uh and but for john this is not an easy john of the cross this was not an easy thing to go through uh, i've mentioned here before it was a kind of ligature the kind of break a letting go of the limitations of our reason our understanding uh that even have been helpful for us in the spiritual life and i think that's true here in what terms of john is saying that the the reality of our sin is that it is devastating that it's destructive of of life itself that the consequence of it is death and i think and and judgment itself and that we are allowed to see that fully uh but it is the beginning of a movement for us it is not all that there is to our experience of god nor what he wants us to experience in all of its fullness that god does not desire the the death of any person that what god desires is life and the fullness of life for us uh but at times you know what brings healing there can be unpleasant for us as unpleasant as it is for a surgeon to operate upon us or to a doctor to apply a certain medicine that brings healing to us that the effects of that initially can be quite painful and so i think to experience god in in terms of the truth of the darkness of our sin is part of what illuminates the ugliness of sin for us even while god is re revealing himself more and more to us as love and, a, and a, as mercy
And, you know, I understand, I think there's a big part of us that resist this. And I think it would be surprising if we didn't, both on an emotional and spiritual level, uh, that there's part of us that does not want to look at the truth or to see the truth fully about our, ourselves and our sin in particular and the weight and the burden of it. And so to be drawn into this experience and to keep our mind, what was it one of the modern elders said, you know, keep your mind, you know, fixed in hell, was it? And yet you're focused. So maybe somebody can help me out here. It's one of the modern elders, I think from Athos. It was keep your mind in hell, but despair not. But despair not, right. So to keep your mind uh, focused upon, you know, where sin leads you and can lead you, but despair not. So not allow that to be ultimately what it is that draws you forward in the spiritual life. Don't let it lead you into despair, but rather to repentance. Uh, if you remember, you know, repentance uh, for the Eastern writers is this constant movement of the turning of the self toward God. So not simply tied to this or that sin, but this constant movement away from, you know, the, the limitations that we often put on love and the giving of ourselves in love and a movement away from our attachment to the things of this world, our attachment to sin to a greater attachment to God and his love. It, this is all part of repentance for us. And so it should be a constant reality, constant movement. And part of that movement, I think this modern elder is saying, keep your mind in hell, acknowledge where the passions and where sin leads you, but despair not. Know that you have a, a savior that is bent upon your salvation. And, you know, bringing you to a greater freedom. Carol, did you want to add to that? Or did you already? I can't hear you. You're talking muted. I put a quote in the comment section. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts were. Okay. Sadness purifies us. Man is truly man in sadness. In joy, he is changed. He becomes someone else. In sadness, he becomes that which he truly is. And this is the way, par excellence, that he approaches God, Elder Epiphanius. Yes, and so, you know, the same, it sounds paradoxical, I think, to us uh, when we hear, hear this, that in the same way, the whole title of this, the joy-making sorrow, or how did he describe it a little earlier, the blessed gladdening sorrow. It seems nonsensical, but the, the reality of it is that this sadness reveals a truth to us, and a saving truth, that sin leads to death, to darkness. And it's seeing that truth that then uh, brings about the fruit of repentance, and leads us to, to run to God, to the one alone who can free us and save us from it. And so this is why the modern elder says, keep your mind there in hell in that 
sadness that bears uh, repentance, but despair not. Allow that sadness to draw you to God, who alone is the source of life and joy. And, you know, I think in our day-to-day life, we, we are often seeking to find that joy or create that joy for ourselves and even for others, rather than uh, seeking it in Christ alone and helping others to find it in him. And, uh, you know, the, this should be, you know, the driving force of our evangelization should be this experiential knowledge of God, of the joy that is to be found in him, the hope that is to be found in him alone, the mercy that is to be found in him alone. And if this is not our experience, then what we, what we are saying to the world is not going to bear any fruit. We can be mouthing the words, but if they're not coming from a heart uh, that has truly experienced it, for whom this is the reality, they're not going to find purchase in another person's heart. You know, they're not going to speak to the, the, the depths of their religiosity. Anthony. When I started finding catechetical materials to take in, I came across a popular internet Orthodox radio station. One of the things they seem to emphasize is that it is wrong to meditate on the passion of Christ, which is quite sad as well as triumphant. It looks like that is incorrect and not the true way to orient our minds, but we should meditate on this question mark. Yes, you know, I. You know, I've often heard that, and, you know, I think that there can be a different emphasis, you know, in the sense of the, the focus upon, in particular, like the, the incarnation, the humbling uh, of our, uh, the humble love of our God who bends down toward us and to show us his mercy, and that the cross is also a manifestation of this love. Uh, but, you know, in my reading of, of the fathers, I, you know, they are deeply rooted in the passion. You know, if, you know, I don't know how it would be possible not to have that as part of your meditation when this is, you know, the, the manifestation of this love, the outpouring, this canonic love, the self-emptying love of the kingdom that uh, I, I find it all throughout the fathers. And so I think sometimes what emerges in discussions and comparisons between, you know, orthodoxy and Catholicism, you know, often arises out of this uh, polemic, polemical kind of approach to, you know, both theology and spirituality, you know, that emphasizes the differences and uh, or subtle, you know, different differences in emphasis to the point that it strains it or strangulates it, you know, in a way that it, it's not true. And so often I've, I found that to, to be the case, you know, when you read the full corpus of certain writers, often what others have said, you remember when we read through St. John Cassian, you know, that he was accused of a kind of semi-Pelagianism, uh, which is sort of a misnomer anyways, because, you know, uh, 
you know, Pelagianism or even how we understand it emerged much later, you know, in terms of how it was articulated and described, but it really arose out of somebody altering his writings to say something that they didn't say uh, in order to diminish uh, his, his popularity and his importance in the tradition. And you know, scho scholarly work has proven that to be the case. And, uh, and when you read through it, you find this constant emphasis upon the grace of God, that all is grace within the writings of Cassian. And so it's, it's the exact opposite of this kind of Pelagian, you know, Pelagian view. I think of the spiritual life. And I think anything, you know, so often things that are this challenging or require, you know, our willingness to enter into them and be challenged intellectually, spiritually, emotionally uh, by the experience of, of these fathers, often we're not willing to do that and spend the time doing it. And so as in any acad academic field, for example, we, we could become lazy you know, not do the work, or we sort of stand on what the work that other people have done, but really have no depth of understanding because we haven't entered into it uh, ourselves to, to experience it. And uh, so we can become lazy uh, on the spiritual level uh, where we're unwilling to enter into the ascetic life where we're unwilling to sit at the, the feet of the fathers. And I'm not setting, saying that we should set aside, you know, our critical faculties and not, you know, read these writings in a discerning way. But there is often, you know, either a kind of emotionalism that is reflects our resistance to a deeper truth of the poverty of our own sin and our need for mercy. We've talked about this before, like nobody likes to be saved because it's terribly humbling. Remember when we talked about the, you know, the swimmer drowning in the surf, you know, nobody's clapping hands for the guy who drowned, you know, is drowning. They're all praising the guy who drags him to shore. And there's some psychological studies, if you remember, show that they often become aggressive towards the one who rescued them from the surf. They become angry at them inexplicably, but it's because they feel humiliated by it. You know, they had to be dragged ashore and coughing up water. And, you know, and so, you know, on an emotional level as well as spiritually, that to, to become that vulnerable before God, to acknowledge that we are not our own saviors, that we cannot save ourselves as it were from the surf of sin, you know, muscle our way through it, and that we are so radically dependent upon his grace and his mercy, that there can be a part of us in our pride that resists that. And so whenever we read something, you know, it's funny, you know, I often will post the Jesus prayer online. And, uh, and it's funny to see people's response about that. That's like, that's it. That's great. You know, keep people immersed in this guilt, you know, that this is the frame, the light in which, you know, you, you know, you're teaching people to see things. And, you know, uh, part of that's born, you know, simply out of ignorance of the greater tradition and certainly what the prayer really means and what the fruit of it. But part of it also is this denial of our of our need for a savior the denial of our sin
uh, I'm not sure who had their hand up there first, if it was Carol or Ambrose. Ambrose, when, when, and then we'll go to Carol since Carol. Perhaps there is something, Ambrose writes, in this related to the notion of the of the love of the law that is through that it is through the law and its judgment so as as so the judge that we see what is evil truly repugnant to life and love that is the nature of god and seeing that stark god repelling reality allows us to more clearly see by contrast the goodness and love of god and to desire him all the more because of that scene the fear of God is the fear of sin and its consequences, the beginning of wisdom, seeing what God hates and judges harshly against, against, I'm sorry, against, harshly against, reveals to us the love of God because he hates what harms us, but pulls us away from him. Right. And so if we get stuck there, though, there's also a problem, you know, that the law reveals that sin, but in and of itself cannot save us from it. And, uh, and so eventually we, we do have to let go of that. Uh, and there were those in Christ's time who weren't, you know, weren't, and I think for the same reason, you know, part of it is that if you could abide by this law and the externals that they created, it gave this sense of being righteous before God. But, you know, Paul has to remind them and us you know, to cling to that, though, is to hold on to something that can never bring joy, never bring freedom from sin. And so it might bring you up to the point where you see the poverty of your sin. The law itself is a reflection of that reality of the fall. And it's given to us, but it doesn't lead us and can't lead us to salvation. This is what only comes through through Christ. But it does reveal something to us that's very important and prepares us, I think, to, to see and to receive joyfully the Savior. It allows us to see the ugliness of our sin and everything points and it points to Christ and the experiences of it. You know, the, the being stung by serpents that we talked about recently in the desert. Moses, you know, is told to, to pin a serpent to a pole and have the people gaze upon it. You know, they have to look at the, the very source of their destruction that is a reflection also of their disobedience to God. And it's by gazing upon it, looking at it, seeing the truth of it, and acknowledging it that they are healed. Carol. Um, the only thing I wanted to add was, um, this reminds me a lot of just the whole concept of poverty of spirit. And uh, I was reading this book by Metz, the poverty of spirit. And he goes into this whole discussion about how Jesus's descent into humanity was an embrace of our extreme poverty. And he makes this interesting comment that um, we don't want to drink our poverty down to the last drop and we're constantly trying to cast it off. And that was the temptation of Jesus in the desert was to cast off that very humanity. And, um, and by sinning, we make a secret compromise with the offspring of sin, the forces of suffering and death. And there's really just such a truth to that, that we're constantly trying to find ways to escape the truth of that. Yeah. Our poverty. You know, I think that book is a classic 
and you know Johannes Metz has other issues theologically, but spiritually, you know, it's about the book's about 70, 80 pages long, but it made a, it's had a profound impact upon me for the reasons that you said. And that Christ enters into that poverty, drinks it to the dregs. And in some ways, you know, we, we are called to do this, the same as well. And there can be an unwillingness on our part, you know, in our pride, we want to cling to the illusion of strength rather than acknowledging that, that poverty, you know, drinking the cup of it, you know, uh, fully uh, and in order that then we might, you know, come to know salvation and peace through Christ, you know, if in our pride we hold on to the illusion, we prevent ourselves from coming to know something greater. And so if the fathers are telling us, or if John is saying, you know, keep your eyes fixed there, you know, see the truth of where that sin takes you. But the, the uh, fruit of that bitter medicine is that it's going to bring an incorruptible chastity and allow one to experience the light of Christ in an unimpeded way, the light of God's mercy. Any other thoughts or comments before we move on? I don't know if I saw another one up here a little bit. Rebecca Therese, I find the poem, uh, The Little Shepherd by St. John of the Cross, very helpful in meditating on the passion because it emphasizes Christ's love and giving himself on the cross for us. So to meditate on the passion is to meditate on the great love of Christ for us. Right. You know, it's not, you know, this kind of morbid delight that we take in meditating upon the passion. It's because we see the depth of God's love there that we keep our, our focus fixed upon it. Okay. Let's see, where did I leave off here? Number 11, during prayer and supplication, stand with trembling like a convict before a judge so that by your outward appearance as well as by your in, inner disposition, you may extinguish the wrath of the just judge, for he will not despise a widow's soul standing before him burdened with sorrow and wearying the unwearying one. So, you know, I think what is described here is what takes place on an eternal level for us spiritually and emotionally. That, you know, during our prayer, seeing ourselves as a convict, as guilty standing before the judge, um, that both in our external disposition and internal disposition, we extinguish ultimately then uh, the, the wrath of the just judge. In terms of our experience, what we come to experience is the, unwe the unwearying one, the one who uh, is never weary of offering us mercy or offering mercy to those who seek it from him. But our capacity for repentance is what allows us to seek that out, to turn toward him. And, you know, in, in the scriptures, I mean, we, we see Christ pounding away against that. I think that hard shell uh, of defensiveness uh, among those who 
we're not willing or able to recognize it. And at times being very harsh with them about it. You know, those who knew their poverty, you know, and experienced it on a daily basis and had no illusions about it. The harlots, the tax collectors were able to make this movement uh, far more quickly and had this capacity to see who it was that was standing before them than the ones that, you know, clung to the illusion that there was a kind of righteousness within them and no need of repentance. So, you know, I think that's important to hold on to, you know, what is again is being described is this internal struggle within the heart is what's going on interiorly. Uh, I jumped ahead in you know, some of the reading to the step on anger. And I put this little quote, you know, where John is talking about the various steps, you know, keeping your lips closed and then, you know, controlling the thoughts that are tied to anger. And then one eventually reaches this level where one isn't moved by that passion, you know, develops a freedom. And immediately somebody uh, commented on it and wanted to move to Christ, uh, overturning the tables and in the temple and being, you know, angry towards the Pharisees. And even after I said, you know, this is not what John is talking about. He's talking about our struggle with the passions and what arises out of our lack of purity of heart with it. We easily become incensed with others and not driven by this, you know, the justice of God and the desire to protect another so much as we are driven by this you know, desire to unleash our anger towards another. But it's not, you know, he's not talking about Christ. He's talking about us and our struggle with our sin and our passions. And, uh, and so what you know, John is laying before us here is the, the nature of the terrain. You know, what, what is going on within the human heart and the battle that is being waged there and how fierce it can be. And, you know, warfare can be, you know, a, a bloody and, you know, traumatic kind of experience. You know, when you're fighting against a relentless enemy, as we've so often described, and when we are struggling against our own fears and anxieties too. And, you know, again, the, the Father's presented to us in a non-varnished fashion. Daniel, this makes sense. If you plead guilty, you will skip past trying to prove your innocence and simply ask for mercy from the judge. But if you are busy trying to put up a defense, you have no time to simply beg for mercy. Right, you know, I think, think of the energy that is expended, you know, uh, in this kind of self-defense or of creating a, an image of ourselves for others and, and uh, for our own minds that allow us to continue going ahead in the way that we always have without undergoing any change in our life. We work pretty hard to maintain our illusions and because part of us is, is loves them. You know, they prevent us from having, you know, to be anxious about our life and uh, 
taking that narrow path of, you know, agonizing to take that narrow path. If they just allow us to move ahead, you know, it's blissful, uh, to, you know, to remain in this kind of ignorance of self. Spiritual life is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> you know, to enter into the fullness of truth. You know, what it holds out to us, I think, is the, the truth of that love and mercy, but it also illuminates the, the darkness that lies within. Number 12. He who obtain, has obtained heartfelt tears will find any place convenient for mourning. But he whose weeping is only outward show, outward show will spend endless time discussing places and manners. Hidden, hidden treasure is safer from robbery than that exposed in the market. Let us apply this to what we have just said. So there are, are certain things that they are so precious that they are to remain hidden within the heart and spoken of only in certain quarters that are not to be scattered, you know, before the eyes of the world to, to be scrutinized. Uh, and I think there's something very important about it, you know, that we are not called to expose our hearts so freely to the world and the way that we do or the many do, you know, in terms of writing our every thought uh, in public for, for people to know, you know, what we're eating one day to what we're feeling, you know, the depths of our depression or, you know, what we're struggling with spiritually, that, you know, that, that which involves intimacy with God uh, is to be protected. And especially when we are talking about certain things like tears, you know, that, uh, you know, a person who has this gift of tears is not going to seek to manifest it for everybody to see. There's going to be a kind of discreet nature about it. And to lack that, uh, John tells us, you know, then we, exp if we expose it in the market, one might, might as well just put Facebook there, scratch out market and put Facebook. If we, you know, display it in the market, then it's going to be open to robbery. Someone's going to tear it down. And sort of what I described, you know, here, this is where I always struggle. I have these qualms of conscience. You know, am I putting out the father's writings there for the consumer? So I, I post this little quote today on anger and what John John teaches about it because I think it's beautiful. But and, you know, immediately, uh, you know, perhaps somebody with goodwill immediately, someone you know starts tearing it apart, like ripping it apart. You know, from my perspective, it's you know this, and it's, well, you know, understand that the con take a few moments and you know make the distinction there. Read it deeply. You know, is he talking about Christ? Is he talking about Christ flipping over the tables? Or is he talking about something that is going on within the human heart? And so, you know, I think our desire to evangelize, our desire to make known what is most beautiful about the spiritual life has to be tempered 
I think in such a way that uh, we aren't just, you know, the whole idea of pearls before swine, you know, that we aren't just casting things out there in order that they might be shredded and mocked, especially about what's going on, more importantly, within, within, our, own, within our own hearts. Because then we also open ourselves up to the, the attack of the evil one, that what might be precious can be then stolen from us, that we can be thrown into confusion in, in doing so. And so, or we can allow ourselves to be baited. You know, and like a little comment like that, I'm not gonna spend hours debating about that, you know, with someone, you know, but I think often we can be drawn into that quagmire, much to our regret. Anthony. If you don't mind me talking instead of writing, sure. um, it looks to me like the discretion really needed is in the answer, but the idea itself is so contrary to the atmosphere of what people from the 1950s at least on, but especially people in the generation younger than me, it's so different from what they know that I think you almost are required, not, I hate to use that word, but we should punctuate the atmosphere. So somebody struggling and choking in this horrible toxic environment can have some kind of light to hold on to. That little aperture that you wrote about, I think you did, the aperture of where God's grace can shine through in the darkness because people are really needed. They're choking, they're dying. They grew up with such trauma. They need to know this kind of beauty and saving love. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, so I think that's what would keep me, you know, doing podcasts and reading the fathers and that there is uh, this value to it. Uh, but not, I think you're right, you know, in terms of how it's responded to, you know, not to immediately take the bait or to go on the defensive and to realize that, okay, people have a responsibility you know, to mature and to think about things. And uh, half the time you want to say, haven't you ever used Google, something called Google? You're asking me to answer these questions that you could look up and read on, on your own. Uh, but in regards to, you know, the spiritual life, you know, I think we are called to bear witness to something that is is beautiful. And but not to expect that it's going to be well received in the world and uh, and not to immediately move to that defensive position and the sense of arguing people into it. You know, part of what is seen or part of, you know, people's embrace of, of the faith is what comes through the gift of, of faith, what is seen, what is experienced. And we're not gonna argue people into that, especially on, online. And so we could put out, I think, that which is beautiful and bear witness to it and uh, know that it's, you know, there's going to be those who mock it or make light of it, uh, but not to be overly upset by that. 
we have to be willing to do what the what Christ told the disciples to do, which is wipe the dust from your feet and move on. And the sense of wipe the, you know, the anger, the frustration, the aggression from your, your feet that wants to lash out off your feet and, you know, don't carry it with you and move on. That's a hard thing to do, even in, you know, our day-to-day -day relationships <laughs> will carry, you know, resentments for, for years. And uh, so I think this applies across the board. Okay, so that brings us to 8.30. We'll close there for this evening. And uh, thanks again for your patience while I've been ill here. And uh, again, keep me in your prayers. Uh, but we'll keep moving on here. Beautiful stuff, wonderful comments as always. So I appreciate it. Okay. So when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all, and have a wonderful feast.